Good morning. The reading today is taken from the book of Psalms, chapter 45. The, uh, the passage is printed in your bulletin on page 6. Um, you may follow along if you please. The heart is stirred by a noble king as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skilled writer, a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your side, you mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. Let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Your, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia, from palaces adorned with ivory. The music of the strings makes you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honored women. Of your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. Listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. The city of Tyre will come with a gift. People of wealth will seek your favor. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments, she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her, those bought to be with her. Led in with joy and gladness, they enter the palace of the king. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. Buenos días. La lectura de hoy es el Salmo 45. En mi corazón se agita un bello tema mientras recito mis versos ante el rey. Mi lengua es como pluma hábil de escritor. Tú eres el más, no, el más apuesto de los hombres. Tus labios son fuente de elocuencia, ya que Dios te ha bendecido para siempre. Con esplendor y majestad, ciñete la espada, oh valiente. Con majestad, cabalga victorioso, en nombre de la verdad, la humildad y la justicia. Que tu diestra realice gloriosas hazañas. Que que tus agudas flechas atraviesen el corazón de los enemigos del rey y que caigan las naciones a tus pies. Tu trono, oh Dios, permanece para siempre. El cetro de tu reino es un cetro de justicia. Tú amas la justicia y odias la maldad. Por eso Dios te escogió a ti y no a tus compañeros. Tu Dios te ungió con perfume de alegría. Aroma de mira, aloe y canela. Exhalan todas tus vestiduras, 
desde los palacios adornados con marfil, se alegra la música de cuerdas. Entre tus damas de honor se encuentran princesas. A tu derecha se halla la novia real, luciendo el oro más fino. Escucha, hija, fíjate bien y presta atención. Olvídate de tu pueblo y de tu familia. El rey está cautivado por tu hermosura. Él es tu señor, inclínate ante él. La gente de Tiro vendrá con presentes. Los ricos del pueblo buscarán tu favor. La princesa es todo esplendor, luciendo en su alcoba brocados de oro. Vestida de finos bordados, es conducida ante el rey, seguida por sus damas de compañía. Con alegría y regocijo son conducidas al interior del palacio real. Tus hijos ocuparán el trono de tus ancestros, los pondrás por príncipes en toda la tierra. Haré que tu nombre se recuerde por todas las generaciones, por eso las naciones te alabarán eternamente y para siempre. See, so you brought your team to church, Clase. Yeah. You know it's not going to help, right? <laughs> Come back. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But they've had a good season. They have. All right. Uh, some, some of you uh, may or may not know that our church has an extended family, uh, meaning we're in a, a network of three congregations uh, that share a common mission and vision, uh, but are located in different parts of the city. Uh, doing gospel ministry, doing life, doing community, doing Jesus' mission uh, in unique ways, but in shared ways all across the city. Grace Downtown, Grace Mosaic, and Grace Moving Hill. One of the joys and the pleasures and the privileges and the benefits of being in a network is on a week like this past week when I was just sick and barely had a voice at our Christmas Eve service for those of you that were there and limping through the holidays that I could call upon my dear brother, Glenn Hoberg, who just preached here two weeks or three weeks, two weeks ago, uh, and uh, to ask him to please fill in, even though my voice is slowly returning, uh, it's a, a great benefit uh, to have him. So thank you, Glenn, for being here. But even more than that, uh, illness aside, I'm just glad that you have another chance uh, to be blessed by Pastor Glenn Hoberg's preaching. He's the pastor of Grace Downtown, and if I had it my way, you'd get to hear him every week, every day. Uh, and so we're looking forward to having him uh, bring God's word to us today. So could we please uh, welcome this brother and thank him uh, for serving us in this way. Good morning. The Duke's pain is my game uh, because I, I get to be with you again, which is always a, a joy for me. And... Uh, I'm grateful to spend this New Year's Sunday with you. Would you pray with me? God, we are grateful to be gathered here. When we come from many places, uh, you are the knower of every heart in this room. Uh, whether it is a heart that is uh, wondering if you even exist, a heart that is feeling so close to you right now, thank you that we can come as we are. And even a little bit of trust goes a long way with you. In Christ's name, amen. 
Well, this past week, I read um, an article from a respected counselor on how we change. Um, and, you know, it was on the heels of New Year's resolutions, stuff like that. And in that, he made the comment that, um, you know, many times the way we approach change is in a New Year's resolution sort of way. I'm going to make this big commitment, I'm going to make this vow, and I'm going to change. But he said, in reality, we change through about 10,000 little decisions we're making all the time. That's really how you change. And I would say it's even a layer under that. It's not just the many, many decisions, but the beliefs underneath the decisions that lead us to change. And there is no more life-changing belief a person can come into than to believe that they are loved by God. I mean, really loved by God. Not, not the sort of when someone goes, well, God is love, generally. I mean, to know you are personally, passionately, really loved by God. That is a life-changing belief. And so um, it takes us really to the core of what the Christian faith was about, who God is. The Bible says the overarching characteristic of God is love. And why he does what he does. God so loved the world, he gave his only son that he might save us. And that love then leads us into who we become. We love because he first loved us, the Bible would say. And so, love is the underground spring that causes our lives to blossom. This is where our hope for change is. If you set any goal for 2016, I hope it is the goal of coming to know the love of God in your heart and life. It is a worthy goal, and I promise you, if you do that this year, next year, you'll come up to Duke and say, my life has been changed because of that. And so what I'd like us to do is to focus some time on a love, a love song in the Bible, Psalm 45. We were looking at songs over Advent. I wanted us to transition into the new year with a song of love. Now, if you have been at a wedding in recent years, you know that there are always songs of love, right? That first dance, maybe it's John Legend, All of Me, uh, maybe it's Ed Sheeran, Thinking Out Loud, whatever it is, these love songs that we hear. And Psalm 45 is a love song. It's actually a wedding song. In fact, it's a royal wedding love song. Now, in America, we don't get to see many royal weddings, do we? Uh, we don't hold those sorts of things. But in 2011, you could actually watch one if you were interested in seeing Prince William and Catherine Middleton, Kate, right, get married. And it got me a little bit interested in what their playlist was, what love songs did they have at their wedding, and they had quite a band. They had three bands, actually, they had two choirs the London Chamber Orchestra, and the Royal Air Force Band. And this was what uh, they had on their list. She walked down to the aisle to I Was Glad, which is Psalm 122. They sang the hymn, Guide Me, O Thou Great Redeemer, and also Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. 
And then there was a specially commissioned anthem to the verse out of the Psalms that says, this is the day which the Lord has made. And as you hear that, you realize there were two weddings being celebrated at the same time. There was the earthly wedding between William and Kate, and then there was the heavenly wedding between God and his people. And we find the same thing in Psalm 45. We know it was a wedding song of one of the kings in David's line. We're not sure which one. But we know it's beyond that. It's the love song between God and his people. You see this evidence in verse 6 and 7, where it says about the king, Your throne, O God, is forever. The name of God is invoked. And that verse actually shows up in the book of Hebrews, talking about Jesus Christ in reference to him. And so this psalm is actually looking ahead to what the book of Revelation would say is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus, the bridegroom, when the Son of God, the bridegroom, marries his bride, the people that believe in him. This is the ultimate place this song will be sung. One Old Testament scholar, a renowned scholar, put it this way. He said, the psalmist pens royal compliments that blossom into divine honors. Royal compliments that blossom into divine honors. And as you and I fix our eyes and imagine in our hearts being at that wedding, maybe you've imagined uh, your wedding day or you hope will be your wedding day. If you imagine this wedding day, you'll find that something comes alive, and that is your longings. The longings of your heart, you become aware of them. You know, in the, uh, I think it was the summer, there was the, um, uh, a lot of uh, controversy in press over the Ashley Madison. Uh, you know, uh, some of you guys are familiar with that, right? The website that was actually designed for committed married people to find other people who aren't their spouse or committed and have affairs. Well, someone hacks into it. And afterward, you know, there were all these different uh, articles being written about you know, whether or not uh, privacy was being honored and what is privacy. Talked about bad business practices. Another one talked about how bad men are. But, you know, all these different articles. But the one article you didn't see was this, how we keep searching for the ultimate love and how foolishly we believe we can find it in another person. And what we find here is a picture of Christ as our lover. And I just briefly would like to talk with you about who he is, what he gives, and how we respond to Christ our lover. So first of all, who this heavenly lover is. If a friend comes up to you and says, I'm in love, you're going to ask, well, who is he? What is she like? Tell me something. Paint a picture. Well, here the psalmist is painting a picture, a very descriptive picture, this language. I mean, there is praise given for the outward appearance of this lover. Yeah, our translation uh, said excellent, others say handsome in there. There's this picture of him wearing a festive robe and this fragrant robe that's before uh, his bride. But what we understand is the more you read this thing, you come to see that the outward appearance being described really is just illuminating, it's lighting up inward beauty, moral beauty. That's the character. 
you know, maybe you've had the experience before where you meet someone and at first you don't think they're all that attractive. But then you get to know them and they become beautiful in your eyes. Or maybe it's been the opposite case, right? <laughs> they seem really hot and then they begin to talk and you're like, not so hot. Well, the prophet Isaiah says to us uh, that the Messiah was not like the GQ Jesus of the movies. The prophet Isaiah says there was no beauty or majesty that we would be attracted to him. What was it that made him so attractive? What, it was his character. It was his character. And there are a few things about the beauty of this lover that we see. First of all, how he talks. Now, uh, it is said that languages that derive from Latin are called Romance languages, right? Spanish, French, Italian, Pittsburgh. No, just kidding. I added that one on at the end. Uh, but in the Bible, it's not the accent of the language that makes it a romantic language. It's not the accent. It's the character of the language. You hear it when it says, grace is poured upon his lips. Grace flows on his lips. That is meaning in, when, when he has the opportunity, when he has the opportunity to be judgy, he's merciful. When he has the opportunity to gossip, he builds up. When he has the opportunity to intimidate with his words, he allures. He draws with his words. One of the things that's said about God, this great king, is his ability to woo with his words. There's a time when Israel is far off from God. They've wandered away from their divine lover. And the prophet Hosea says this, that the Lord said to Israel, I will allure her. I will bring her to the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. He speaks words that would draw us out of the bushes to himself. And it's a mark of a leader. John Calvin, who lived in the 1500s, uh, said once of the kings of his day, kings are not only to rule by authority, but they are to allure people to obedience. Isn't that an interesting idea? To be allured, to be attracted to obedience. And this is one of the things that God does. You know, many times when we, we want people to fall in line, we nag them. We yell at them. We manipulate them. But God has this ability to speak to us in such a way where his commandments become attractive to us. His way of life becomes more attractive to us than what we see in the city or what we see in the world. And the way that happens is you begin to understand that he's your lover. So a question for you to ponder would be, do God's commandments seem attractive to me? And if the answer is not really, where you want to go is, I, I, I don't understand him as the lover that he is in my life. It's not only how he talks, it's what he does. In verse 3, we're told he is a mighty one. And we have all this imagery, armed with a sword, sharp arrows, unstoppable arrows, enemies fall. But this isn't just, isn't just brute force. You know, power is dangerous without love. But power with love, what? It becomes a protective thing. So this is a picture of God as defender. This is a theme that you find throughout the Bible. That God is the one that can defend his people against enemies. He defends them against physical enemies. I mean, heaven will tell the stories of how many times God protected you and me. But it's not just physical enemies, spiritual enemies. 
the enemy of accusation. You know, it's the inner enemies that are worse in our lives. Those are the ones that do us in. The voice of accusation. The voice of true guilt in our lives because of things we've done. The fear of impending judgment. All these sorts of enemies. And what we find that he is a mighty lover. I love that. Mighty love is what he's talking about here. It's not just brute force. It's love put together. One of the clearest expressions we have of this is in Romans chapter 8. Where the Apostle Paul talks about the mighty love of God. And, and for some of you, this is a familiar passage. But I want to read it to you. And I want you to listen to it in terms of his love. How his love shows up. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? All these enemies. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. How are we conquerors? Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things nor present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. What are you afraid of right now? What are your fears? Maybe for you, New Year's Day was New Fears Day, right? You were just thinking about all the things you're afraid of for the new year. But how do you believe that you'll be protected? I think many times we're thinking, God will just deliver me from these circumstances. But the thing is, we aren't delivered from the world of trouble. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. You see, that's a no-win situation. If you think you're going to escape the world, you won't. The way that we actually withstand the world is living under the shelter of his love. It's the protection of his love. It's knowing his love that calms our fears. Another question for you to ponder. Where am I anxious? Where am I afraid at the present moment? Does his love make a difference? Does his love call me? But lastly, the way he acts. We have this image of a king riding in a chariot. What's on the chariot side? If you could read you know, the license plate, it would say truth, meekness, and righteousness. Now, that's an unusual combination, isn't it? Because usually the people we know that like tell the truth all the time, they're not very meek and humble. And the people that we know that are righteous, they tend to be sort of self-righteous. They're not humble. But you find with Jesus Christ, he's called both faithful and true, but also gentle and humble and lowly. He's these things at the same time. One commentator said this, even when he shall break his enemies with a rod of iron, he will do no man wrong. His vengeance and his grace are both in conformity with his justice. It's a complex of these attributes. You see, God doesn't give up his holiness, and he doesn't give up his righteous judgment and vengeance, but he doesn't do it unjustly. And you and I, as we begin to experience that love, find that happens with us. You know, we're told in the Bible not just to speak the truth or speak love, but to speak the truth in love, right? And this is what it comes to be when we begin to know this lover. So this is who this heavenly lover is, just a little bit. But also, what is it that he gives? Now, royal weddings are not a private affair. Imagine if Prince William and Kate wanted to have a private wedding. There would have been a rebellion in England. Right? People want to see the wedding. I want to see the footage. 
because they understand they have a stake in the king. And it was the same for Israel. As they heard this song and watched this royal wedding, as they looked up there, they didn't just look and go, well, that's nice for him. Wish I could be king. They understood that their future was part of the king's future and the queen's future. They understood their stake, their lot was with his lot. They were bound together. His blessing meant their blessing. His honor meant their honor. His favor meant their favor. And you find a similar relationship here between the bride and the king. She now shares what the king has. And when people get into relationship with Jesus Christ the king, you share what your bridegroom has. In a good marriage, that's always the case. What sort of things? Three things. First of all, we share glory. We're told that the beauty and riches paid to the king now reflect upon her, the bridegroom. Verse 13, she wears a many-colored robe. She stands at his right hand. She's in the company of her bridesmaid. She is sent wealth from these regions with fine gold. The bride now is sharing in the riches in the splendor. And the Christian gospel says that when you enter into relationship with the king of glory, you become glorious. Listen to what the book of Ephesians says. And this is that passage where the Apostle Paul's talking about marriage between a man and a woman. But you notice he's not satisfied just talking about that. He can't help but break through heaven, break through heaven and talk about our wedding. This is what he says. He talks about the bride. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. You know, living in a, a home with two daughters, I've had my fair share of say yes to the dress episodes. And, uh, you know, it, it's one of these things where it, it's really amazing if you watch this because there's such a tension, right, given to these clothes that they fit the bride perfectly, but they're, they're beautiful, right? They have such detail and design. Well, God goes one further. God is aware that his bride needs that. Splendor without spot or wrinkle, holy or blameless, complete glory and righteousness. You're not going to find a dress like that on earth, right? Walk into yes to the dress and say, what I'd really like is a dress that covers up my shame. What I really would like is a splendor that takes away the guilt and the things that I've done and my regret. Do you have anything in my size? You can say that to God. He'll, yes, I do. It's the righteousness of my son. I mean, imagine if you and I had to wear all our bad and selfish deeds on the outside. Imagine if that's what we had to wear. The lust, for, you know, for, for reputation, lusting after other people's talents and gifts. All the different things, the envy, the bitterness, the rage we feel. Imagine if we had to wear them on the outside. I mean, if you're like me, you go, man, I'm glad I don't have to. I'm glad that no one sees that, but that's not really true. One person does see it. God sees it. And this is what's so amazing about the gospel. He sees it. He sees that, and yet he sends his beloved son to wear that mess so that he might clothe us in his righteousness. I mean, as Jesus Christ was being crucified, it wasn't just a painful event he was going through, a horrendous event. As he is hiked up on this cross and he is half naked, the son of God, and he's beaten beyond recognition and people are throwing things at him and spitting things at him and he is ugly. 
before the world. That's a picture of him taking on our moral filth, our wrong deeds, our selfish deeds. He does that so you and I might receive his righteous deeds by faith. Righteous and holy. But he not only gives us glory, he gives us gladness. In verse 15, we're, ta- we're told about the, the joy and the gladness that the bride experiences as she's led into the presence of the king. One of the finest signs that you and I are beginning to understand God's love is our joy. And as someone has said, if you really believe that God gave his son for you, notify your face, right? Your smile, right? Notify your joy. Joy is this index that I really believe I'm known by this lover. I think many times, again, you know, if someone just said to you, be more joyful, smile more, that ain't going to work. There's got to be something deeper in you. So it's this gladness that comes from what he gives. But lastly, the generations. In place of your father shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. Not too long ago, I caught up with the film Interstellar. And there's a line in it where uh, the father says, a parent's job is to become their child's future memories. A parent's job is to become their child's future memories. Now, you know, that's not all the way true, but it's some of the way true, right? If you have a niece or a nephew in your life, if you have a son or daughter, you can't help to hitch your future to their future. What you long for them becomes part of your life, those longings. Well, it's a similar thing we're here. The greater fulfillment comes. The king is saying to the bride, listen, you know, forget your father. That's hard to hear as a father with daughters. Forget your father. You know, forget your family and come to the future and I will give you descendants. We'll have a future together. And the beautiful thing about this is whether or not you're married or whether or not you're able to have children or whether or not you have children, this promise is true for anybody that's in Christ. The Bible says that Christ brings many sons and daughters to glory. How does he do that? Well, he does it through you. He does it through me. God brings people into his family through us, and so that when you get to heaven, you have a chance to look out and go, this is the legacy that God has done through my life. It may be tutoring a child. It may be spending time with a neighbor, a neighbor's son who needs some support. This is the legacy. These are the future generations that God has given us. So all these things, glory, gladness, generations to come, happens when you enter into this marriage. These are the wedding gifts you've gotten. Martin Luther has this great quote to really nail this point. I've got to read it to you. Because he understands this idea of what it means to be married to Christ in faith. What it means to have a spiritual marriage with God. Listen to what he says. Christ and the soul become one flesh. And if they are one flesh and there is between them a true marriage, indeed the most perfect of all marriages, since human marriages are but poor examples of this true marriage, it follows that everything that they hold in common, the good as well as the evil, for if Christ is a bridegroom, he must take upon himself the things which are his brides and bestow upon her the things that are his by the wedding ring of faith, Christ shares in the sins, death, and pains of hell, which are his brides. As a matter of fact, he makes them his own and acts as if they were his own, as if he himself had sinned. He suffered, died, and descended into hell that he might overcome them all. Who then can fully appreciate what this royal marriage means? 
Here this rich and divine bridegroom, Christ, marries this poor wicked harlot, redeems her from all her evil, and adorns her with all his goodness, of which she may boast in the face of death and hell. If I have sinned, yet my Christ in whom I believe has not sinned. And all his is mine, and all mine is his. As the bride in the Song of Solomon says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. Can you say that? My beloved is mine, and I am his of God. You can say it. You can say it today. But how do we respond to close? Well, we respond with an undivided heart. There's only one fitting response to that sort of love. If someone loves you that way, there's only one way to to return it. It's with a pure and undivided heart. In verse 10, hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty, since he is your Lord bowed down. This is what we might call in our terms the leaving cleave. You know, when a, when a man and woman get married. In fact, I, I'm thinking about um, when I was in a marriage seminar led by Chuck and Debbie Garriott in our congregation here. And uh, they said the most important thing you can do when you enter into marriage is learn how to leave and cleave. That sets the tone for everything else. This idea that I'm realizing I'm leaving my independent life, I'm leaving my agenda, I'm leaving in my family traditions, and I'm saying it's me and you and we're building from here. Well, that's what God calls every believer in him to do. They begin with this leaving and cleaving. The Apostle Paul wrote to a a church that struggled to do this, just like you and I struggle to do this. He wrote, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you, I engaged you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You see what he's saying there? It's what Jesus would later say in the book of Revelation, you've forgotten your first love. And I don't know what that would be for you. There's so many loves that allure our hearts, right? Love for achievement. Love for accomplishment. Love for approval. We want the city's approval, the city's applause. Love for comfort. Love for my own culture. Love for my personal peace. Love for my independence, perhaps. That can I, I can always keep my options open. How is your heart divided from God? Because he's calling you to respond in kind to the way that he responded to you. Jesus Christ is not an ambivalent lover. He is not a hesitant lover. Once when, you know, when my wife and I were dating and getting close to that point of, of uh, possible marriage, I started to get yellow. I started to waffle. And, you know, basically, she had to say to me, in some words, let's paint or get off the ladder, right? I mean, like, make a decision here. I often find whatever decisions, whether it's that one or another, there are certain times in our lives where our decisions are a point of faith. And if we don't go ahead with faith, we find it weakens the rest of our faith. I don't know. That could be a number of decisions for our lives. But Christ is not an ambivalent Lover, love is responding. So you find all these words like hearken, consider, incline your ear, give attention, turn your attention to your lover. You know, marriages fall apart not because of lack of affection, but because of lack of attention. You know, it's because of that moment. 
where attention begins to wane. And maybe as you begin this new year, instead of a big commitment, maybe it's a spiritual commitment. You know, I, I'm going to really give myself to God this year. I'm really going to serve God's kingdom this year. Whatever it would be, I'd encourage you to start small. You remember the 10,000 mini decisions? A small decision. Maybe it's I'm going to spend my seven-minute walk to the metro, if you get to be that close to a metro. Seven-minute walk to the metro, and I'm going to give that time to God every day. I'm going to lift my voice to pray, and whenever that little voice says to me, you're going to pray the way you've lived, I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to pray anyway. I'm going to spend, you know, one week just on one verse of the Bible. I'm not going to read 100 chapters. I'm going to start small. Give attention to your God. And just don't do it as a means to an end. Begin to go, am I seeing my lover? May all of us at the end of next year be able to say, I know my lover better. I know him better. And so... uh, Whatever your marital status is this morning, um, your groom is at the altar. Christ is at the altar. Can we pray? God, we thank you. Uh, There is no God like you. We, We know of no other faith like this, no other God presented as a lover, a divine lover like you. I pray for each heart here that you would allure it, that you would conquer it that you would make it your own. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand and sing the love of God and say thank you. I come before you today And there's just one thing that I want to say Thank you, Lord Thank you, Lord For all you've given to me in my life you 
took my darkness and gave me your light. Thank you, thank you, Lord. I want to say thank you, Lord. You took my sin and my shame. You took my sickness and gave all my pain. Thank you, thank you, Lord. I want to say thank you, Lord. Oh, with a grateful heart, with a song of praise, with an outstretched arm, I will bless your name. I will bless your name. When you have a hard time believing his love for 